are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering online. Please go to www.hopechurchguildford.com for more details. We look forward to getting to know you. Hi, I'm Helen and I've been going to Hope Church since about November of last year. Um, I'm married to Ed and I have two children, Faith and Elliot, who are four-year-old twins. Um, and I became a Christian um, when I was around six years old. I don't really remember it. Um, what I remember about my childhood is the stories my mum, dad and other family members would tell about God in their life. And um, I remember uh, particular stories about how God had protected them in the most dangerous situations in their jobs. Um, how God had revealed himself to them in, uh, through his Holy Spirit um, and through other people when they uh, were in trouble how um, God had um, broken through to a family member that they thought was um, just so out of reach that would never um, be able to, to understand and to know God and God broke through um, and just miracles really that they have um, told me about and I've grown up hearing about. So my faith was always based on, on those um, facts really, their experiences, um, rather than a story. And so I've never doubted God in that way. I've never, I've always known that God in your life is big and um, it means everything and it's so, it's vital. Um, but growing up in a Christian family, um, in this sort of bubble, um, yeah, you have to question whether the faith is my own. And definitely when I went to university and I lived overseas for a time as well, um, I took my Bible with me, um, but I kept it under my bed. And um, I wasn't following God during that time. And I um, was quite wild. Um, and um, I built up a lot of regrets. I built up a lot of um, just embarrassing, shameful things that I thought actually you know, that's me now, um, I've chosen this path and um, there's no going back for me, there's not really any hope for me. Um, and then at the end of uni, um, my dad got cancer and I just said to God, God, I will come back and I'll come back to church if you'll take away his cancer. Um, <laughs> and he did. Um, and so I did start going to church um, and um, you know, there was a few bumps in the road after that, but um, I began really sort of um, committing myself to church and everything at church um, and really um, getting to know God again and God forgave me and he take, took away that shame from me and he gave me that hope that I could see that um, he had a plan for me still and um, I was still loved by him um, and he had so much um, for me. And I remember saying to my colleagues at work, we used to have these huge conversations and we used to stay late talking about um, God. And I remember saying to them, if you don't believe in God, watch my life. Um, watch his hand on my life. And I don't know if they did, but um, if they had, I really truly believe that they would have seen God's hand on my life. Um, because now I have so many stories that I can tell my children um, about how God has shown himself in my life, how he's carried us through 
really difficult times, how he spoke to us, encouraged us, used other people to do that in our lives. Um, and yeah, how he has blessed us immensely with um, so many things um, and how he's still carrying us, still carrying my family today, um, still, um, yeah, helping us through difficult time, times. Um, he's always there for us and that evidence, I hope, will be really apparent to my children that they won't be able to um, escape the fact that God is real. Um, and I thank God that we have that, that he's our hope for today, that he gives us all we need for today. Um, and he is our hope for the future and our eternity with him. Thank you. Thank you so much, Helen, for sharing how God has worked in your life. So there was a time when the direction Helen had taken in her life left her feeling like there's no hope for me. But she found that God had not turned his back on her. There is still hope, regardless of what we've done in the past. Now, before we continue the Hope Matter series today, here's a quick trivia question for you. Which of these three animals takes the longest for a baby to grow inside its mother before she gives birth? Just give you a moment to think. Well, the answer is the elephant, which is pregnant for 22 months. Imagine that. Then the killer whale, which takes 17 months. And finally, the giraffe, which is a mere 14 months. But interestingly, with giraffes, the mother has to give birth standing up. So the baby needs to be big enough to brace itself for a long fall to the ground. Now in today's passages, we're going to be hearing about being spiritually born and how long that takes. We're going to be looking at how John's Gospel tells us about a man called Nicodemus, a respected teacher of the Jewish law. We'll see how he considered Jesus with an open mind and how that encounter with the Son of God transformed him into a man of courage and purpose. But this was a journey that took time. When Catherine taught last week, about the woman at the well, the change in her was almost instantaneous, wasn't it? She dropped her jar, ran to the village crying, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Today, although we don't get all the pieces of the jigsaw, it seems like Nicodemus's journey to faith took maybe two and a half or three years. And we'll see that from the passages. So Jesus plants his life-giving words inside Nicodemus they incubate inside him for several years and then he's reborn, reborn like a new man. That's even longer than it takes for a baby elephant. Well, Lisa is going to bring us three readings today from the Gospel of John. So if you'd like to follow along in your Bible as she reads, please turn to John chapter 3 for the reading, beginning at verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Thank you, Lisa. So here we are introduced to Nicodemus as a Pharisee, one of a group of quite hard-line teachers of the Jewish law. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council, so 
clearly an important and well-respected man, he was a pillar of the establishment, and so he had a lot to lose. Most Pharisees didn't like Jesus' different way of teaching the people, and most of the exchanges Jesus has with the Pharisees in the New Testament end up with them attacking what he's saying. Do you remember last week when Catherine explained that the timing of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well was unusual? It wasn't the normal time for people to gather water. Well, it's similar this week. Theological discussions would normally happen during the daytime, but Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Presumably there were no street lights. His timing was unusual, but the darkness provided a cover for his visit. As an establishment figure, Nicodemus was probably very cautious about what others might think, particularly his fellow Pharisees. So he came alone, not representing the other Pharisees. One might imagine him sneaking out quietly, careful not to let anyone know who he is going to see. Now Nicodemus comes with a different attitude to his fellow Pharisees. Rather than suspicion and disdain, he comes with curiosity. His opening remark to Jesus starts with a term of respect, Rabbi. Despite Jesus' lack of formal education, Nicodemus recognises him as a teacher and treats him with respect. He goes on to acknowledge Jesus' learning and miracles. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So how does Jesus respond? Well, he doesn't scorn Nicodemus for coming secretly at night. He knows that sometimes people can be worried that others might look down on a person if they follow Jesus. But on the other hand, Jesus has no need to bask in the recognition and respect that comes from this important member of the community coming to consult him. Jesus has no need for anyone else's approval. And he certainly doesn't look to charm Nicodemus or make the most of his influence with the other Pharisees. He simply treats Nicodemus like he treats anyone else, as a person to, person to be taught and loved and brought to salvation. So this is night time. There's no electric lights, maybe some candles or an oil lamp. But Jesus can clearly see right inside Nicodemus' soul. Isn't that just the way with Jesus? When we read about him, he bypasses the niceties and he speaks right into our hearts, right into our needs right now. Like the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. So Jesus searches Nicodemus's heart and speaks to his deepest need. Nicodemus needs to be born again. So my first point today is that Nicodemus comes to Jesus with curiosity. Let's hear the next few verses from verse 4 of John chapter 3. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised by my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. 
So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. Now, it's easy to be impatient with Nicodemus when he says, how can someone be born when they're old? But this was radical teaching. Being born again was not part of Nicodemus's vocabulary. No wonder he takes it literally. Jesus shows, though, that he's talking about a spiritual birth. Now, in verse 7, the second time Jesus says you, that's in the plural. All of you must be born again. Everyone must be born again. I wonder if you think about yourself as a born again Christian. Well, I edit a magazine for my work and recently my proofreader told me that the title I wanted to use for an article was a tautology. Although I nodded along knowingly at the time, later I had to go and look up. What does that mean? A tautology apparently is where you say the same thing twice using different words like a dark haired brunette. Well, every brunette has dark hair, so you don't need to say both dark-haired and brunette. And so it is here with the term born-again Christian. It's a tautology. Jesus says no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. To be a Christian, you have to be born again. Jesus refers here to being born of the spirit, sorry, born of the water and the spirit in verse 5. Being spiritually reborn is invisible. That's why it's important to show everyone around us our new birth by being born of water, being baptised, that is. And it's symbolic. It's a way of showing us and everyone around us a picture of the new birth that has happened inside of us. Back in chapter 1, John wrote about John the Baptist baptising with water, helping people to show the repentance that's gone on inside. So if you've been born again spiritually, you need to be baptised. I don't quite know how we baptise someone while staying two metres away from them, or is it one metre now? But with God, all things are possible. And if you'd like to be baptised, do get in touch with one of the church elders and they'll find a way. Nicodemus says, how can this be? And I wonder if we're expecting something a bit more profound from a member of the Jewish ruling council. But this is mind-blowing stuff, isn't it? This teaching still amazes people today. I remember when I was 19 years old at university, seriously considering Christianity. The Christian Union put on brilliantly persuasive talks every week, going through loads of barriers to Christianity, like God versus science, free will, other religions, and so on. And I really did need to deal with all these intellectual objections that I had. God removed these barriers one by one. But what really blew me away during that year was when a member of the Christian Union sat down with me one to one and we worked through the Gospel of John. Jesus is a man who speaks straight to the heart. As we look through these passages, I encountered him. He understands what we're like better than we understand ourselves. And it's quite natural when we come to some of Jesus' teaching to exclaim, how can this be? And in the verses that follow, Jesus makes this all clearer. So my second point today is that Nicodemus listens carefully to Jesus. Now, as I prepared this talk, I was trying to keep the spotlight on Nicodemus, but I found that Jesus kept stealing the show. And after verse 9, we don't hear any more 
of Nicodemus in this chapter. The rest of the chapter contains perhaps the most famous verse in the whole Bible. See if you can spot it as Lisa reads John chapter 3 from verse 10 right through to the end of the chapter. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do not understand these things. Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Lisa read for us from the NIV translation, but I'm gonna share a few verses from the Passion translation. I'm just doing that because Many of us might be too familiar with these famous verses. It's just a way of helping us to hear them in a fresh way. The Son of Man is ready to be lifted up so that those who truly believe in him will not perish but be given eternal life. For this is how much God loved the world. He gave his one and only unique Son as a gift. So now everyone who believes in him will never perish but experience everlasting life. Now, if you think it's humbling to become a Christian, to admit that you need God's help, will you be right? But that's nothing compared to how humble Jesus made himself. Verse 13 states, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So he's talking about himself. Jesus has come from heaven from being at the right hand of the Father. He lowered himself and has taken on the body of a mere human on this earth. He could have lorded it over everyone down here, but no, he became a simple carpenter. He became a Galilean, looked, upon, looked down upon by the sophisticated classes. And here, just three chapters into John's Gospel, we hear about the pains to which he will go to show God's love. The Son of Man is ready to be lifted up. No, not lifted up in a way to be celebrated or recognised, but lifted up in the most feared mechanism for death and torture in the Roman Empire. Jesus predicts his painful death on the cross, where he will perish in our place, so that those who truly believe in him will not perish, but be given eternal life. 
for this is how much God loved the world. He gave his one and only unique son as a gift. Jesus was God's greatest gift to us, greater than any riches, more precious to the Father than anything he'd made. He gave his son to be humble, to be rejected and to be our substitute so that we would not perish as our sins deserves. So now everyone who believes in him will never perish but experience everlasting life. What a wonderful promise this is. Anyone who believes and trusts in Jesus can be born again into everlasting life. What a life-giving hope that is when there is so much death and fear in the world today. Death is not the end. There is a life to come and Jesus is the way. Well, these verses are magnificent and there's so much more to say, but we need to return to Nicodemus. This chapter comes to an end with no further mention of him. We must assume that he took these words from Jesus away and pondered them in his heart and mind. We'll next come across Nicodemus in chapter 7. So my third point is that Jesus tells Nicodemus the good news. After Jesus' astonishing teaching in John 3, we're left hanging then for four chapters before we hear again of Nicodemus. There's no neat wrapping up of how he felt after hearing Jesus. John chapter 2, just before that account, finishes with the Passover feast, which is in the spring. And this seems to be then when Nicodemus visits Jesus in chapter 3, probably the spring of AD 30. And the next time we come across Nicodemus is in John 7, and we're at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is two and a half years later in autumn AD 32. So Nicodemus has been pondering Jesus' words for a long time. Let's have a look at what's changed in him over these two and a half years. Now the context of our passage in John 7 is that Jesus has been claiming more amazing things, that he's a living water that will quench people's thirst. The Pharisees in the meantime have become enraged by Jesus' claims and actually have sent their temple guards to arrest him. So we pick up the story when the temple guards come back empty-handed to the Pharisees and Nicodemus is there as one of them. Lisa's going to read to us from John chapter 7 starting at verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? 
Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. The Pharisees are furious at Jesus because they think he's leading the people astray. It's during the Jewish Feast of Booths when the teachers of the law see themselves being in charge of events. The Pharisees are clearly very cross because they see Jesus challenging their authority and here they're furious when they're even their own temple guards defy their orders to arrest Jesus. And at the height of their fury, one can imagine that Nicodemus, one of their own number, must have felt immense pressure to close ranks with his fellow Pharisees. Jesus was the controversial figure of the day. Perhaps we can think of a few controversial public figures in the news these days. There's not much space for middle ground, is there? Either you're with them or you're with us. And it seems like there was a bit of this toxic atmosphere around Jesus at this time. The people are divided. Some think he's the Messiah and some think he can't be. The temple guards are torn. They've been ordered to arrest Jesus, but he seems so convincing. And now even Nicodemus, one of their own number, seems to turn on the Pharisees. Hang on a sec, he says. Have you actually listened to what this guy Jesus has got to say for himself? I paraphrase. Do you think he's going to get a sympathetic hearing? Of course not. And they tear into him. Are you from Galilee too? And this is clearly an insult. Galilee was thoroughly looked down upon. And in today's language, that would have been like the sinker state, full of crime and deprivation. Nothing good would have been expected to come from there. And then they insult Nicodemus's knowledge of scripture. Ah, look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. This would have been a cutting remark to someone whose reputation as a teacher of the law was built upon his precise knowledge of the scriptures. It's actually not true because the rest of the Bible tells of several prophets that did come from Galilee. One example being the prophet Jonah. In our passage here in John 7, the peer pressure is huge. Nicodemus has a lot to lose. His membership of this tight-knit group of Pharisees, their respect for him, his reputation among the people, his position on the ruling council and, and his future career prospects, they're all up in the air. But he speaks up. Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? I'm sure you could cut the atmosphere with a knife. We've heard nothing about Nicodemus since John chapter 3, but something has shifted, hasn't it? This is his turning point. Do you remember earlier when Helen talked in her testimony about her turning point? It was when her father was diagnosed with cancer. And then she stepped out in faith. She came back to church trusting that God would be with her and bless her choice, however humbling and costly it seemed at the time. And so it is here. This is Nicodemus's turning point. Does he keep it as just a secret admiration for Jesus? Or does he nail his colours to the mast and risk his reputation out of loyalty to Jesus? In chapter 3, he goes to Jesus at night. Clearly a secret conversation. He didn't want anyone to know that he was talking to Jesus, the controversial teacher. But now he's changed. He is willing to risk a great amount to protect Jesus' name. Clearly those powerful words of Jesus have been going over in his mind and heart over these years. When we receive Jesus' words into our hearts and minds, 
they have the power to change us deeply. Nicodemus has changed from uncertainty and fear back in John 3 to a man of conviction and courage. Have you ever been part of a group and felt the need to call them out on their prejudices? Well, we've been thinking a lot about racism recently, haven't we? I wonder if you've ever been at work and a racist comment, perhaps, is made in passing. Nobody else seems to be objecting. You've got a choice, haven't you? There's a lot of pressure, perhaps, just to let it go. We might have thoughts like, won't I spoil the atmosphere if I call them out on it? Or will I no longer be part of the in crowd if I make a fuss? Is it going to spoil the prospects of my promotion? I know in previous jobs I've been at after work drinks with colleagues and something unkind or gossipy has been said about another person. And to my shame, I've, I've said nothing to stand up for that person. I knew that I should have, but the peer pressure to keep quiet can be very strong. Will we defend Jesus' name in our workplaces, among non-Christian friends, next time we hear Jesus being judged or dismissed or used as a swear word? Will we just keep our heads down or will we challenge what's been said? So something has changed in Nicodemus's heart. God has given him courage and he's prepared to put his neck on the block to stand up for the name of Jesus. And that's a challenge to us. So my fourth point is that Nicodemus makes a costly stand for Jesus. Now Jesus, now um, we're just going to hear one final passage. Lisa's going to read our final passage to see Nicodemus's final act of service after Jesus dies on the cross. She'll read from John chapter 19 verses 38 to 42. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus's body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now a lot has happened. Another six months has passed and we're on to spring of the following year. This is the Passover of AD 33. Remember Nicodemus's first encounter was with Jesus around the time of Passover AD 30. So three years have passed since then. The other Pharisees got their way and had Jesus crucified. Nicodemus's words, while brave, were not enough to persuade the Pharisees to listen to the light of the world, they had chosen darkness. Well, what can Nicodemus do? Should he give up? It looks like the Pharisees have won and Nicodemus, what can he do? Jesus has been killed. Well, he's a wealthy man. Nicodemus can spend something on dealing with a dead body. But what he does is not just a 25 pound bunch of flowers for the funeral. Nicodemus brings a huge quantity of highly expensive spices to wrap Jesus' body up with. 
in today's money, this might be fifty, a hundred thousand pounds worth. That's twice as much as even the extravagant perfume that Mary used on Jesus' feet. Why was he doing this? Well, certainly not for human approval. He was doing this just with Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple. This was all being done as discreetly as possible. But in God's wonderful working, Joseph and Nicodemus fulfil Isaiah 53.9, which states that Jesus' grave will be with a rich man in his death. There's another cost to Nicodemus and Joseph, according to Jewish law. By handling this dead body on the eve of the Sabbath, they would have made themselves ritually unclean and may even have disqualified themselves from participating in the religious feast of the Passover. But perhaps they saw that Jesus, the Lamb of God, had replaced the Passover lamb as their substitute. So Nicodemus serves Jesus here at significant personal cost. And we can serve Jesus now too. It's by loving one another. Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 25? I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Even in lockdown, how can we show our love for Jesus? By loving one another in practical ways. So my final point is that Nicodemus served Jesus generously. In conclusion, we've looked at three years in the life of Nicodemus. Let's look back at our five points. We saw that Jesus comes to Jesus with curiosity. Nicodemus listens carefully to Jesus. Jesus tells Nicodemus the good news. Nicodemus makes a costly stand for Jesus. And finally, Jesus serves Jesus. Sorry, Nicodemus serves Jesus generously. I wonder where each of us is on this scale today. Maybe you've just started to open your mind to the idea that Jesus has something worth saying. I know some people take longer than others to work through their response to Jesus' invitation. So I invite you to join me now as we pray through each of these five points. Please join me where you can to pray this in your heart. Jesus, please take away our prejudices about you. Take away our apathy. Help us to come to you with an eager and open mind. Help us not to be afraid of what others might think. Lord Jesus, help us to listen carefully to what you say to us from the Bible. Thank you that you have the words of eternal life. Father in heaven, thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your one and only unique son as a gift so that everyone who believes in him will never perish but experience everlasting life. Lord Jesus, we recognise that coming to die for our sins cost you everything. Give us courage to be open in our faith with others as we seek to follow you wholeheartedly in our lives. And Holy Spirit, for those of us who follow Jesus, please show us clearly anything that we're holding back in his service. Help us to surrender our time, our money and our ambitions for Jesus' glory. Amen. Well, thank you for listening today. In Helen's testimony, we saw that hope made a difference in her life. We've seen that hope transformed the character of Nicodemus. Hope matters for you and for me, and that's why together we're called Hope Church. Thanks for listening. 
We're meeting online every Sunday at 10am. Head to hopechurchguildford.com for more information. We look forward to seeing you.